Hello and welcome back or welcome to the Performance Rising Podcast. I am Dr. Matthew Dunn and it has been a minute, but I'm back and looking forward to speaking with today's guest, Dr. Jennifer Card. Dr. Jennifer Card, welcome. Thank you, Dr. Dunn. I'm happy to be here today and to uh, be in this space with you today. Dr. Card is, uh, besides being a brilliant uh, practitioner of organizational development, she's also a very good friend and the author of a new book, Leadership Equanimity, The New Super Skill for Leaders and How to Cultivate It. And she is here to tell us more about um, her view on uh, organizational development and certainly on the book. So with that being said, Dr. Card, you're here. I'm so happy that you're here. Looking forward to this conversation. I'd love to start out with asking you, uh, give me a brief overview of your journey. Mm, good question. So journey to the book or journey to the here and now or both? That question is open-ended on purpose. It can go wherever you want. Um, yeah, okay. whatever you would like to share about your journey in this crazy thing called life. Yeah, I mean, where to begin? I think um, one of the things that I discovered along my way is that books have always been my friend. And they've always been that place where I've um, explored some of my thoughts and I was able to also gather information and learn new things. And it kind of opened up a whole world to me. So um, back in the day, in my early, I guess at the end of high school, um, one of the ways that I got, I was led to psychology in general was I read this book. I was going through a hard time in my life. I had uh, mononucleosis. I was in my last year of high school and I didn't want to miss a year of high school. I wanted to go with my friends and graduate and go to university. And, and here I was quite ill. Um, and I thought, how am I going to do this? Um, how am I going to navigate this? And I was handed a book called Mentally Tough. And it was actually written by a sports psychologist, which I know is one of your areas of expertise. And it opened my mind to this fact that our, we shape a lot of our reality with the way that we view it and our perspective and our attitude. And this was very, very empowering to me at the time. And I thought, wow, who, who you know, I this opened up a whole avenue of interest to me. And although I did take psychology in my undergraduate, I, I, I did business at the beginning of my studies. I always, whatever I would go to read something, it would be psychology or philosophy and sometimes the juxtaposition of the two. So later in life, um, I, I I came back to it after also reading A Man's Search for Meaning. And, and Dr. Dunn, I know we've had a, a great conversation on this many times that there was a quote in there about there's a space in between our reaction and our response. And I thought, once again, here's this, this empowerment, this choice that we have as human beings in the way that we choose to behave um, and this empowerment to actually sort of depersonalize situations that we don't want to get triggered by. And it's and how sometimes, although we can't ex um, control our external environments, we can we can think about the way that we're controlling it internally. Um, which then fast forward brought me to um, doing my master's in positive psychology. Um, and that actually was a bit of a... Um, an incident that occurred that actually I, sometimes the universe talks to you if you're kind of at a, at, at a crossroads. 
I had had, I'd started a jewelry company and this jewelry company was uh, to help people through healing stones and affirmations and words of encouragement that you would wear on you like a mindful reminder. And what I found was this business wasn't very successful because what I was really enjoying is the interaction that I was having with my clients. And it it ended up giving a lot of my jewelry away for free. And I thought, well, actually the the conversations that I want to have to support people in their journey. um, And so how, how do I do this? And I thought, what do I do with this? I don't know. And I'd sort of dabbled with writing a book about it called Positive Radiance. Um, and that kind of was going nowhere. And I was in the standing this bookstore and there was a big table, you know, they lay the books out yeah. flat. Yep. And I kind of carry a bit of a personal space with me. And so it was very strange that this stranger came up and kind of nudged me on the elbow and pointed to this book and said, you need to read this. And I thought, well, that's that's odd. And so I, the, you know, it was almost like this light bulb went on this book on the table and it was flourished by Dr. Seligman, who's at University of Pennsylvania. And I thought, okay, well, this is really weird. So I kind of picked it up and I literally went home, devoured the book and researched quickly and signed myself up for my master's in positive psychology. And it just literally spoke to me because I, what I realized was all these thoughts that I had about the power of the mind and the power and our, the importance of our choices and our attitudes that there was this whole body of academic research already out there had been digging into it for years. And it was almost like I made a whole bunch of new friends and every rock I turned over, I was like, wow, it was so humbling um, intellectually. Um, And it just kept sparking my curiosity. So um, after I finished my master's degree in positive psychology, I started practicing with, with them as a coach and I just felt like I needed to learn more still. I wasn't, my learning journey wasn't over. I was still kind of hungry to learn more. And that brought me to the William James community. Um, And I'd never thought about putting that leadership spin on things. And then I realized that so much of what we do, we're all leaders in a way, whether we're leaders as a parent, whether we're leaders as a coach, as you well know, or um, leaders in our community, leaders in our family and things like that. So I thought this, this, this is actually a great, uh, angle and lens to focus in on psychology. So I entered and, and luckily I was in the same cohort as you um, and uh, just really enjoyed that journey. And part of my uh, dissertation or actually not part of my dissertation, but the angle of which I actually took all my studies was to keep gearing towards this idea of caring for our minds. And that brought me to psychological self-care and then I developed a program through research to hopefully, because I think so much of our, our knowledge is based on, we know how to take care of ourselves physically. Like that's just common knowledge. Like we know whether we do it or not, that's up to you. It depends on the day. We know if we sleep right, eat right, and do everything we possibly can, we're, we're going to increase our odds of, be, of being healthy people. But so little is known about how to actually proactively psychologically uh, care for ourselves as opposed to physically, even though I know the two are combined, I know like a long run can actually have a somatic psychic effect on our brains. Um, I wanted to dig in more to how can, what little micro habits could we do each day, um, especially if we know we're going into stressful situations to to be and perform at our best and, and develop this program and realized out of this that I wanted to carry it forward to a book. And so, we are yeah. 100% gonna dive into that book. Um... If I may, I would like to just take a step back, and that is, um, you know, very, very taken and moved by your relationship, uh, and one that I share with books, and how these ideas like uh, mental toughness, which I actually think I read 
uh, now that I think That's back, of course, and uh, and Man's Search for Meaning, and and the power that those books had for really um, opening doors that perhaps wouldn't have been open without them. And with that, knowing you, but also hearing you discuss the the business with um, the Healing Stones, you know, there is a very pronounced spiritual a thread that, that I know that you embody. And, you know, I would love to know more about how you connect to that and what that means for you. Mm, yeah, it's a great question. And sometimes I lose sight of that. Sometimes I get too data research driven and then I get away from myself and, and really thank you for bringing that up. Cause it is the important cornerstone that kind of brought me to this. So um, I believe that we only know so much about how we exist, why we exist, and there's still so much to explore. And I think we get sensations and feelings that we also need to not get numb to, and we need to keep tapping into those, our gut feelings and as sensory beings. And um, so I'm, I'm just an open-minded person. I like to think in this, this area, like I think we have still so much to explore and still so much connection to each other and the universe that we have yet to understand. Um, and I, I did, I was a yoga instructor in part of my journey back way back when, and, and got into meditation and mindfulness as well, which is very, that sort of deep connection with oneself and also with the universe. Um, and that kind of brought me to the healing journey stone, um, area of my life to think what around us can we do to help ground us and, and other than just sort of data. And I think if I had drawn up a perfect PhD program, it probably would have been in metaphysics, which I sort of see as the metacognition mixed with philosophy and psychology. Um, so this was kind of the, the place where I could at least explore a lot of these ideas. And, and so I think part of this book, too, as you're making me think right now with the equanimity is to make sure that I stay grounded in, in what I want to keep exploring. And, um, and that's, that's, that, that's this idea of, of universal forces that we, we have within ourselves and we still maybe can explore within our relationships in our universe. Did you have, um, for lack of a better term, an awakening to this, uh, force, I guess I'd say force within yourself, you know, were your, were your parents particularly spiritually attuned uh, or I'm just, I'm just curious about how did this awakening start for you? Oh gosh, that's a great question. I think, no, I think, well, no, not my parents. Um, I mean, they're open to things, but not, not in this kind of um, spiritual way. It's not a sort of household discussion that we would have. I do know that my great grandfather who was from Finland um, was what I would like to say is a reluctant, reluctant clairvoyant. He, he was known as um, people would come to him and he would have feelings and he would express those feelings that would sometimes, you know, whether there's data behind it, science behind it, who knows, this is what he was known for. And he actually didn't want to have this kind of feeling that he had. So maybe there's part of me that's just curious about that. But I think, yeah, I, I don't know the answer to that other than this is, as I explore more in books, this is where I, I get these feelings that I think that there's still more to explore and I want to stay as open as possible in my life to to what's what could could be. What what are your feelings on this, Dr. Dunn? Great question. So somewhat similar to your family history, which I know more about than the casual listener because we're we're friends. My in my family, there is a generally accepted thread of you use the term clairvoyance. 
maybe sensitivity. So there was a there was a general and is a general acceptance of perceiving things before they happen, being attuned to different sensations, dreams that perhaps reveal future events. Um, you know, my grandmother was was certainly strong in that way. And um, so I grew up just kind of accepting that it was not a weird thing. It was kind of like, Oh, I guess what I, I, I had an idea about falling off a slide and I decided to, you know, get off the slide and just so happens that it fell over, you know, whatever it may be, it was not anything that was deemed weird. Um, so like you, I, I do have a general acceptance that there are forces energy that is not quantifiable through you know traditional scientific means uh i i don't have a particular definition of what that is or where it comes from but i know for me that that is real mm-hmm. and and i i know that you you share that and so you know that that's a great inroad here to the book which um as you pointed out it, it carries this really powerful healing thread. I think maybe that's what I took from it is there's this undercurrent of, of health and healing and um, tools for thriving in a, in a really chaotic time that we, that we are in certainly. And, and so with that said, you know, the book is leadership equanimity, the new super skill for leaders and how to cultivate it. You know, let's start with, what is equanimity? Mm, yeah, that's a great, great question. And I and I think it's the one's ability to choose their actions and behaviors by being able to co-hold the tension of their external world and their internal world um, and even recover oneself. Um, it's not necessarily to be devoid of, of emotions and expressing emotions, but it's being aware of of why they're happening, of how they're happening in others, and to be able to to be in this world and to be conscious. Um, And and there's a mindfulness about it. There's a presentness of it. Um, I think in my my book, I'm just looking here at my notes, it's contemporary equanimity for leaders aligns with the perspective enhancing concept of being able to co-hold the tension of both the external world and its demands with the internal world of self-awareness of thoughts and feelings. Um, so I think that's kind of in a nutshell. And, and I opened the book with a quote by Marcus Aurelius um, that was, you know, he he wrote frequently on equanimity back in, I don't know, AD. And it was about this idea of even if you do lose your or sort of get rocked by circumstance, it's the ability to recover yourself in the moment. And the more that you practice that, the better you'll become at that. What What was the gap that you saw? that this book fills in leadership? You know, what was your sense of, you know, there was something missing and this book fills that. And what was that missing part? Mm. I think two, twofold. So the first thing that brought me to this concept of equanimity, besides my my interest in mindfulness, was um, this idea that there was a, a, a ubiquitous, ubiquitous reframe about keep calm and carry on. 
Leaders are supposed to be keep calm and carry on. And I was always like, well, that's great. Don't disagree with that. But how? How? When we have the VUCA, you know, the volatility, uncertainty, complexity, ambiguity. How is a leader supposed to do that when they're exhausted, when they're being pulled in all directions, when they have competing priorities and work lack of work-life balance? Um, and so I went into the literature and, and a lot of it in the research and a lot of it was saying, well, you know, wellness is obviously key critical and don't disagree. Mind and body cannot be separated into, into their influences on one another and, and keeping a fit body and, and doing all the right things physically absolutely would have a positive impact on your, your, your psychological state. But again, in the research, it, there there really wasn't as much. There is definitely some in the research and uh, resilience programs and things like that. But I thought there, I wanted to explore this a little bit more um, and explore the how-to. Yeah. You, you mentioned mindfulness. And this is a buzzy word. And I often feel that it is not necessarily understood. And if you could kind of walk us through what, how you define mindfulness and where it fits into equanimity, particularly. Mm. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. I think mindfulness is, is sometimes used in many different contexts and that may not be a bad thing. Um, the other thing that I, I will say about mindfulness is sometimes it's um, defined in meditation or used in, uh, in interchangeably. And meditation is a path to mindfulness. Meditation doesn't necessarily mean it's the only path to mindfulness is what I, I might argue. And somebody may feel differently about that. I do think it's it's a nice clear path to mindfulness and the practice of mindfulness. But really, what is mindfulness? It's being completely present in the moment, aware of yourself without judgment, aware with your environment without judgment. It's being sort of still in that moment and clear. Um, the great thing about mindfulness with respect to our well-being is that if you are truly present in a pure straight, which I'm sure is very difficult to achieve, but as we strive to that as continuum, is that when you are in a state of mindfulness and present moment awareness, you you can't be, um, you know, ruminating about the past or, or mm -hmm. worrying about the future. Um, mm -hmm. You're present. And this actually speaks to flow. And I I know I'd love to hear from you, too. And about like sort of, you know, aha moments that people might even have in sport and those peak performance moments where, you know, with flow, you're so challenged in the moment, but in a good balanced way that your skills are being called upon, not to an anxiety provoking state, right. but to a state that you're relaxed with it and completely in the moment. And that to me speaks to mindfulness. So you can, in my opinion, you can achieve mindfulness by walking in nature. You can achieve mindfulness, um, I would even argue, in reading, um, listening to music that sort of deeply moves you and keeps you in the present moment. Um, and I would I would argue that even in peak performance in, in athletics is related to mindfulness as well. I agree completely. And you mentioned flow. And again, that's a, a buzzy word in, in sports performance. And the way I come at it or think of it as, and you, you mentioned this, it's, it's really a relationship to fear. And, but in particular, it's not letting fear uh, activate or control, but rather acknowledging it and, uh, and, and, and kind of acting, not in opposition, but in chorus with it. Mm. And so uh, again, in the sports paradigm and in life in general, there, there's so much 
general fear in the form of stress, fear of competing, fear of losing, um, performance anxiety. And if you get into quote unquote extreme sports, there's, there's a literal fear in the environment, for example, in, in what you're doing. So, you know, j- along with what you said, I, I, I agree completely in that mindfulness is a way of dancing with mm. fear and not letting fear lead the dance. Mm, I like that. And that's the idea of co-holding the tensions of the two realities. It's what, you know, what's going on inside non-judgmentally, what's, what, what's going on externally and, and finding that balance. And, you know, it's something that you said that um, that's very interesting to bring in the concept of fear, because it then speaks to this idea of a stress mindset, which in, in my reading, I came across um, uh, professors Crum and, and um, was probably the lead on this. But it's this idea that, um, you know, it's our relationship with stress that matters. It's not to say that with equanimity or anything else that we're not going to have stress in our lives. Like the reality is we do. It's choosing what you're going to really feel stressed about, choosing to activate your physiological stress response when it's necessary, especially for survival, because too often we go into this stress response state when really we're not threatened. It's just like sort of a story we've told ourselves but I liked their research angle that it was about, um, you know, if we actually just change our perception that the feelings that we feel when we're under pressure, when we're needing to perform, maybe if we actually just shifted it and said, well, this, this is exciting. This this actually moment's going to call upon my my, you know, most optimal performance. And that actually will actually shift the way that we engage in, and increase our performance. So I actually like the fact that you brought up this idea of, um, of fear. And is it, is it a bad thing? Does it help our performance? Does it drive us? So your inclusion of stress mindset was one of my major takeaways, highlighted, circled, 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 because mm-hmm. it is really departing from the traditional, if you will, growth mindset paradigm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and if you would kind of take us through a little bit of that from the growth mindset construct, and then into the stress mindset and how those things relate and perhaps are different. Yeah, I definitely, I think the core of it is how we engage with challenge. So with a fixed mindset, we um, will we'll see a circumstance, for instance, or a new challenge, and we'll be like, I can't do that. You know, there, I, there's a good chance I'm going to fail on this. I don't have all the data yet. And, and you know, I think I'm just going to avoid it. So it's an avoid stance usually walk away from it. You don't want to deal with it. It's fear inducing, stress inducing, stress hormones go up. If you're faced with a challenge and you enter with a growth mindset where you say to yourself, you know, I actually don't know how to resolve this necessarily, but I am a resourceful person. I have conquered things before. I do have a great team or people that I can reach out to. And guess what? Even if I fail at this, it's going to show me what I need to improve on. And I'm going to learn from it. And that even of itself will reduce your stress, help to increase um, your joy of the the adventure of it all, and also lower your your stress at the end of the day. And that, I think, is where that stress mindset comes in. It's not necessarily that you're not being challenged. It's that you've actually chosen to take a different attitude towards it, which will then impact your performance. How do you see stress the stress mindset or lack thereof, particularly influencing leaders? Well, yeah. So I think that going back to that again, it's like 
leaders are like ping ponged with stress, stressful events all day. So it's, it's not about, oh, I need to get rid of all the stress in my life. Well, that, that's going to be a losing battle. But can you, can that leader equip themselves to have the equanimity to pause, to reflect, to only absorb the stress that they actually need to physiologically respond to? Can they shift their relationship with stress um, in, a, in more like, hey, this is actually kind of fun. This is actually kind of, this challenge is sort of what I was seeking in my career. I mean, let's face it. If you're a leader, you weren't looking for an easy career. You were looking for something that was going to stretch your growth edges. And congrats, you're probably in a situation that's going to do that if you're feeling challenged. Yeah. Yeah. And and how, I just think this is so timely. Um, you know, I know just in my own practice and, and working with leaders as well, again, particularly in the sporting paradigm, it is just laid in with fear. It is probably the defining characteristic um, that's attached to performance spaces is it goes hand in hand with, with fear. And this idea that we can embrace it mm-hmm. and, and I don't know if use it is too strong of a word, but um, I'll use dance again but dance with it. And I think that is such a powerful message for leaders across any spectrum to hear is that that stress can actually be a fuel of sorts. It's an indicator that, um, that you can go in this direction confidently uh, because, you know, stress is to be expected and and not shunned. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, and I think it's also with that said, though, I also think like I actually, actually have two thoughts on that. So let me just go back. So I think as you were as you were speaking, I was thinking of the um, the Carl Rogers quote that I know that we've, we've shared on some of our, our exchanges and communication that the curious paradox is only when I accept myself just as I am, then I can change. And it's almost like the curious yeah. paradox yes. of the moment is only when I accept the moment just for what it is, then I can change. So that was the the first point is just to sort of really, really, truly step back from the moment to assess it. And we, you know, we go back to our our own, our our tandem readings in Heifetz as well. And this idea of getting on the balcony view of of really what the situation is. Um, But having said that as well, I think we also have to be cognizant of, you know, is our intuition telling us that something unsafe? So there's fear and then there's something that's actually going to impact our safety. Um, Also, there's, there's a line there. And I, and I think, going back to our sort of metaphysical discussion earlier is just staying in that state of being truly in tune with oneself and the environment is probably a good place to kind of walk that line. Yeah. And the, uh, just for the listener, who's not immersed in OD reading, which most people aren't, uh, the balcony metaphor, would you like to just walk (laughs) us through that? I know you and I could completely nerd out on this subject. So (laughs) I'll, (laughs) But I, uh, I am, yeah, so it was a great book. So it was a book by, and work with me here, uh, Matthew, it's uh, Heifetz, uh, Grashaw, and um, Linsky. That sounds it's great. called Adaptive Leadership. Um, and one of the concepts that was throughout this book is in order to stay in, I would call a leader's mindset, as opposed to a manager's mindset. A manager's mindset, you're deep in the weeds. Sometimes leaders have to be managers as well. Um, they have to pay attention, but the whole point of delegation and building up that team as a leader is that you can step out of the weeds, 
So say step out of the forest is another metaphor uh, or step out of, in, you know, instead of standing in front of one tree, you can actually step out and get the whole forest view. So the same idea with um, the balcony is to be able to step up, to see all as it is, to co-hold, again, we go use that word, co-hold all the tensions of what is, um, and, and then to be able to use that for decision-making, judgment, strategic planning, things like that. Yeah. So tied to that, and, and this is the concept you go into in depth in the book, is the idea of um, mental agility or mind agility. And, and I found that to be so fascinating. If, if you would kind of walk us through what the concept of mind agility is. Yeah. And I think the most important thing about mind agility is to be the proactive behaviors that we need to have in order to prepare the reserves to be able to have it. When we're in a state of like overtired, overworked, no sleep, you know, things like that, that you just don't have the bandwidth, you don't have the mental space, you don't have the mental capacity. If you've been constantly letting yourself get triggered, and I say letting yourself because getting in front of those and learning what your triggers are, it's going to take up mental real estate as well. So you just don't have that mental bandwidth to move comfortably and with ease through difficult situations. So the whole concept of mind agility is is taking those pre-actions, just like physical agility, it's not so dissimilar. You can't just go and, you know, become a, you know, go to a yoga class and do every single yoga move unless you've actually been practicing, you've been training, you've been stretching, you've been doing daily activities to increase your agility. It's the same with your mind and your psychological resources or reserves and resources that you have um, at your ready. Yes. I uh, Like I said, that was um, just really impactful for me of um and particularly how it then goes into resilience which is you know something i certainly have struggled with in, in my life and i have plenty of clients who do as well you know where do you see resilience fitting into this equation mm. yeah that's a that's a very good question and I, I think it's it's essential um because resilience is not so dissimilar to the idea of equanimity it's it's being able to it's not necessarily things are going to go negatively or you're going to be rocked by something, but it's it's being able to kind of recover in the moment. Um, and resilience is, um, is, I think, also part of the stepping stone or mind agility and things like that, that actually leads one to the state of equanimity, which I just think is one more step on the ledge a little bit higher. Yes. Just a little bit higher um, than, than resilience. Yeah. Yeah, that and that makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, speaking of of resilience and and connecting some threads here is, you know, you talk a lot about the tolerance for ambiguity, and that is part and parcel of a VUCA reality, right? Mm -hmm. That this is uh, basically we live in a world defined by chaos and, and not necessarily order, and in that chaos there is a form, and trying to work with that form um really allows for i guess just um a a confidence in dealing with something that cannot be defined explained um or otherwise understood in a concrete way mm -hmm. and that certainly for me can be incredibly taxing on mm -hmm. one's mindset and mm -hmm. There was something you wrote about a self-affirmation intervention. Mm -hmm. And that was, you know, again, one of these things that was highlighted and circled three times. 
And I'd love for you to walk me through a self-affirmation intervention, um, which is something that I definitely have taken into my own practice. Great. Okay. Absolutely. So, well, first thing, I just want to go back to this idea of tolerance for ambiguity, because I, I, I think that it's something that is contextual in our lives. I think it's a continuum. And I think that we have higher tolerances for ambiguity areas of our life and lower tolerances in other areas of our lives. I think that how we are feeling that day and how we start our day will also impact our ability to deal with uncertainty. And I also think that we all have different working styles and, and working personalities, which also allow us. Some people are a little naturally less inclined to be. And that just means that they have to build that skill set just that much more. Um, so going to the self-affirmation theory, and this was actually um, the my thesis in my master's. So it was sort of started with uh, Professor Steele out of Stanford. And um, it was it was it's based on this idea that um, quite often what we do if we go into a stressful situation is we let that one stressor define us in that moment because it can feel all encompassing. But what research has found, and then Sherman and Cohen has also done a lot of research also out of Stanford um, as follow-up on this, is that if we, before a stressful event, actually take a moment to affirm within ourselves authentic values, strengths, behaviors, things that are positive in our life, when we enter into that stressful situation, we will be less rocked by it. We will be less affected by it. Because remember this sense that we have a global sense of at, like a global adequacy, meaning that we have other things that we're strong in and it's okay. So it's less, it makes that one stressful situation less defining. So a lot of the research was actually done on, on students, university, high school students before entering an exam. And what they found is if the students actually wrote down, so say they were entering into a math exam or something, if students took couple of minutes to write down three other strengths that they have. Perhaps, hey, they have a great group of friends. Hey, they have a loving family. Maybe they really love their, their soccer team or, or football, as you're saying, Bermuda. Um, they would, they that would actually help lower their cortisol levels. Mm -hmm. They actually measured it. So when they went to actually engage in the, in the exam, they were less stressed. And as you know, generally speaking, um, we will perform better if we are less stressed in the negative way. Right. 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 And that, so, yeah. go ahead. I was going to say, and that, that again, speaks to the stress mindset is these are all things that are, you know, tied with these beautiful th through lines of using a self-affirmation as a way to, is it soothe? Ground, or, I would say. Ground. Okay, great. It, it to ground within a stressful situation and thus a stress mindset. Does that make sense? It does. And you know what? I'm, I wrote a note here because I, I I think it's fascinating that you link the tolerance for ambiguity with that as well, because if you think about it, ambiguity is the unknown. And you and you know, also from, you know, neural neural leadership studies that uh, our brains don't like surprise, that our brains will hy be hypervigilant and will do it will go the negative spiral to protect unless we tell it otherwise. Um, and so tolerance for ambiguity speaks to that because ambiguity is a surprise. It's the unknown. It feels, it feels, un we, we, we just don't know. Um, so this idea of even using it 
for increasing our level of to tolerance for ambiguity, a self-affirmation intervention is, um, is, a, is a positive way to ground ourselves um, when facing that. Because in the end, it doesn't really, does it really matter that we don't know what the, right. what's going to come? Because we already know this about ourselves. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And yeah. And so I think um, reminding ourselves, and that leads me to that exercise that I have in the book about creating that that board for ourselves, where we remind ourselves each day, all that's good, all that makes us happy, all that is authentic to us, all that challenges and inspires us, that it grounds us for a day to face these ambiguous moments in our lives and challenges. Yeah. So uh, when you read the book, you'll see this exercise, but, but quick, walk us through the board exercise because I thought it was brilliant. Oh, thanks. Yeah. So um, again, in um, in my research into self-affirmation theory, I found that a lot of it was written. Um, the interventions could be verbal. They could be checking off lists of things, um, strengths and values. And then I go back to my universal metaphysical in, uh, interest and I thought, well, how can we actually operationalize a vision board? Mm -hmm. how, can we how can we actually show some science behind it? Like people have said that my vision board actually came true. So that was kind of my interest to explore that. And so I thought, well, I wonder if self-affirmation from the research could actually create a board that is um, academically based. So that was that was the idea. And then I thought, well, um, there wasn't a lot of research done in, in actually stating those um, things and affirming ourselves from a visual perspective through imagery. And we know that like a picture paints a thousand words. Well, we can take in a lot of information visually very quickly. And so I thought combining all that all together with a very um, easy to use platform, which is your computer. Let's face it, we all sit down in the morning with our cup of coffee in front of our computer. And instead of diving into your work, maybe we can just sit for three minutes and do what I would hope would be a mindful exercise of engaging with some visual self-affirmations to ground ourselves yes. for our day. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just thought that was brilliant and so useful in, in so many contexts. So hats off to you. Um, I just think any leader, any organization can use that technique. Um, which, which then kind of takes us to space for EQ which is, uh, you know, a centerpiece here. And what is Space for EQ? Yeah, thank you. Um, so Space for EQ is the protocol or program for uh, daily engagement with your own psychological self-care. It is uh, developed to do the Mind Space Board um, so that you could sit down each day and develop it. Uh, in my case, I've suggested using Pinterest, but if you have your own platform that you like to use, or even you can use a PowerPoint presentation and find images and collage them that way. Um, but it helps to, again, ground that the exercise in science. So the S is for self-affirmation. So pinning all those images that are part of your value system, part of your strengths, maybe even aspirational strengths or things that have made you feel sort of psychologically strong in the past as well. So you find images on that and, and pin them to your board. The P is for positive emotion. Um, and that's based on the work of uh, uh, Fredrickson out of University of Chapel Hill and her work into positive emotions and how that has a, a dramatic impact on our, our well-being. So pinning images that feel um, bring us joy. 
Um, and then the A is for attitude, and that that speaks to approaching life with um, optimism and, and gratitude. And then C is for centering. So we talk about mindfulness, and, and definitely a big component of that is nature. There's so much research on the importance of nature and lowering cortisol levels, lowering blood pressure, and, and just even 20 minutes a day, even in urban settings where you can find a bit of nature can have a dramatic impact. And the idea here is it all leads to this E, which is um, equanimity, which can help us create more psychological space and reserves and that space in between when we're faced with change and challenge. Um, so that that's that's the development of the board. And it doesn't necessarily have to be in a visual setting it, it, or on a sort of Pinterest board, you could actually write those things down if you're more of a pen to paper type of person. I'm going to take this now to the next level as we mm -hmm. look at the level of organizations. And mm -hmm. you will not be surprised by this question as we've talked about it a lot. But as a central theme of this podcast is culture, uh -huh. you, you first get to sit on the hot seat and give us your definition for the term. Oh, oh my goodness. Um, I want to hear your definition first. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no. Okay. I refuse. Okay. Um, well, I, I do believe that culture is socially constructed. Yes. Um, because you can say your term has a culture, but does it really? Because culture is actually uh, here we go. A collective, a collective mindset in action. In within the framework of an organization. Yeah. That's how I would define it. Yes. Um, I so I will answer the question now. Thank you for enduring <laughs> that hot seat. I'm taking notes here because I uh, well, I yeah, I mean, there's so many definitions. <laughs> um I think it, it generally refers to patterns of human activity and the symbolic structures that mm -hmm. give those activities significance and importance. Mm -hmm. Um mm -hmm. So it's symbolic, and, th and that's certainly a crucial part for me. And it's socialized. So it is learned through socialization. Um, what, with that being said, what or how would, how would a culture based on equanimity feel like to you? If you were to walk into an organization that has adopted this as a central tenet of its culture, what, how would you feel that or experience mm -hmm. that? Yeah, I love that question. And I, you know, when you uh, stated your definition of culture, it reminded me of the symbolic aspect and the, the importance of artifacts. Yes. Um, to walk in to actually see culture in action and what that might look like. Um, so what would equanimity look like and feel like? Great question. I think people would definitely, without a doubt, an environment that is led in an organization that has equanimity as part of its culture or the grounding force of its culture would have a very high level of psychological safety. Yes. Um, people would feel free to be themselves authentically, to show up, uh, a sense of belonging. They would have a sense of autonomy. Um, they would There would be a sense of ease, overall ease, where the organization itself would have a growth mindset where people were pushing themselves in a, in a positive way, but not afraid to fail. Um, and so I think, I think, and there would be a, a great sense of, of well-being and balance. And mm. I use that word balance, which I think is really important of challenging and pushing oneself like the idea of flow flow essentially is the 
the pinnacle of balance. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I'm, I love that vision, particularly, I think so much of what is being understood now on the social emotional side of, of culture and in all organizations um, is speaking to this need for a workplace that feels Mm -hmm. safe. It acts safe. It encourages the expression of individuality um, in a non-judgmental way. Um, and, And this is coming up, you know, across so many sectors that I have seen, um, even schools, for example, my daughter's school does a great job of this. But, but I also see that there is a that shift, if you will, that tide has changed. There are those organizations that haven't got the memo, mm-hmm. um, and and they are persisting with cultures that are toxic, hurtful, stressful, mm-hmm. and you, mm-hmm. you kind of want to shake them and say, you know, do you see this? that is happening. And in your book, again, leadership, equanimity, the new super skill for leaders and how to cultivate it is a brilliant starting place. You know, if you want to develop safe spaces and safe cultures, you know, the book outlines step-by-step actions that can be taken by leaders at all levels to create these really uh, holistically safe spaces. And so for that, you know, I just have to to thank you um, for for writing this book. And and as we're rounding the corner here towards wrapping up, I can't believe it's been an hour. Um, you just I shouldn't say that. Why don't you walk me through kind of your steps of um, publishing? So when when is the book expected to be published? Where can people get it, et cetera? Uh, well, first of all, thank you so much for that because you know uh, I have such a high level of respect for you. And, and I think when we went on our academic journey and in, in together in the same co- cohort, I think I just was always so appreciative of the way that you would push my thinking. And, and so I'm very, very grateful for that. So thank you. You're very um, welcome. Yeah. So I think, um, so the book will be uh, out available on Amazon and I, and probably we're just in the final, final, final edits. I found a typo just the other day. Um, so it'll be out hopefully in Amazon before Christmas. You'll definitely see at the beginning of January. Um, and then all the other outlets such as Barnes and Nobles as well online. There's a hardcover, a soft cover, and a um a digital version, um, depending on what your preference is as well, available for sale. And if people want to get in touch with you or learn more about you, where can they connect with you? Oh, thank you. So my company is called EQ at HQ. And the website is, so Equinomy Headquarters, uh, and the website is www.eqhqconsulting.com. And I will put a, a link to that in the description. Um, and are you on social media? I am. I I believe I'm just listed under Jennifer Card. I I, uh, I I actually don't know. I think there's some numbers after that. But if you Google Jennifer Card EQHQ, I will, I will come up on, on LinkedIn for sure. Jen, you have been so generous with your time. I have one final question and that is what do you wish all leaders knew now that perhaps they didn't know? Great question. I just, I need to sit and think on this just for a second. What do I wish that they all knew now that, that leadership does not have to be 
associated with stress, the harmful stress, that 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 they could they have a permission and to give themselves permission and also to be an example for the organization to find and and live happy lives and work life balance and 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 not be on the treadmill all the time. Yes. Thank you for that. Dr. Jennifer Card, the book is Leadership Equanimity, the new super skill for leaders and how to cultivate it. It'll be out in January. Make sure you check it out. It's so worth the read. Um, and, and Jen, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you very much, Matthew. You know, it's always a pleasure.